Hello, and welcome back to the Agents of Change in Environmental Health podcast, brought to you by the George Washington Milken Institute School of Public Health and Environmental Health News at ehn.org. I'm Brian Binkowski, your host, senior editor at Environmental Health News and the editor of Agents of Change. Our team has been busy lately. We've had two excellent essays from our fellows recently, one from Dr. Yosita Ornelas Vanhorn on treating research participants better, and one just last week from Ms. Beth Dauda on the importance of listening to communities when pushing for clean energy transitions. You can find both of these at ehn.org under our special projects tab. I want to draw attention to one of our supporters, Beauty Counter, a clean beauty brand on a mission to get safer products into the hands of everyone. More than 1,800 questionable ingredients are never used in their product formulations, and they advocate tirelessly for safer industry regulations because they believe beauty should be good for you. You can learn more at beautycounter.com. All right, today I am talking to Abrania Marrero, a PhD candidate at Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. Abrania talks about the increasing push for food security and sovereignty in Puerto Rico, how the island's relationship with the U.S. mainland has impacted its residents' health, and the threats posed to the island from climate change. Abrania has a powerful, at times poetic, way of describing her research around food, and I really enjoyed my time with her. Enjoy! Well, I am really excited to be joined now by Abrania Marrero. Abrania, how are you? Good. How are you? I am doing excellent. I really appreciate you taking time to talk today. I'm really excited to kind of just dive in. Yes, excellent. So let's do that. Uh, I I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about growing up in Puerto Rico, what it was like, and and what about it perhaps influenced your choice to pursue public health? Yeah, so my mother's family is from Orocovis, which is kind of dearly called the Corazón or the heart of Puerto Rico, right in the center of the mountains. My father's from Barranquitas. And like a lot of other families in the late 90s, my mother actually uh, lost her job when this federal tax incentive was repealed and it began to drain a lot of the island's industrial sector into bankruptcy. So she moved the four of us with my sister uh, to New Orleans, um, where I currently am because of the pandemic and where she continues to work as a petroleum refiner. My dad is in the Air Force, but my sister and I would spend every summer, though, like a lot of other Puerto Rican children, kind of back and forth back on the island. So I was kind of raised in Orocovis, too, um, kind of trailing after the skirts of my grandmother, my godmother and my six aunts. So there's this like song. I kind of like speak in music. So like bear with me. There's this kind of unspoken national anthem in Puerto Rico. Um, and in it are the words, um, quiero volver a sentir la tibia arena, a dormir en tus riberas, isla mía for cautiva. And that translates to, I want to go back and feel the warm sand, sleep on your riverbanks, island of mine, captive flower. And that lullaby captures so much of what it means to remember my childhood. It was a peace governed by the stillness of the mountains Um, the nourishment of a backyard garden. It was cousins and cleaning and cooking. Uh, Yeah, it's like a nostalgia made up of just as much by warmth as it is by like grief because you just like want to go back there. 
And it was like in trying to understand why I couldn't, why there was like so little economic opportunity there in the island that launched me into the research I do now. Um, Like when I was little, I never understood it or maybe they just didn't let on, but my family was poor. Um, My grandmother had to have a job at the school cafeteria and was a seamstress and made pasteles for all of her family members and friends. Uh, She worked like all her life for the privileges I now get to carry. And I wanted to understand how it was possible that a people so full of strength and self-determination had to like constantly fight against this weight of poverty that like certainly wasn't homemade, right? So I wanted to know how we could as families and as communities, like just go back right to that abundance. That was a lot, but... (laughs) No, that's excellent. That lullaby is really beautiful. Even though I don't speak the language, it, it it's really powerful. And it, the idea of home being warmth is so odd to me because I live in such a tundra, <laughs> such a frigid climate. But you know, it's the same idea of of, of winter being warm together indoors. Um, so I, I, that's that's a really beautiful, really beautiful lullaby. And so so building on what you said, you've said of Puerto Rico that we are not vulnerable. We have been made, we have been made vulnerable. And I, I think that's a really powerful little pack of words there. And I was wondering if you could talk about what you mean and how your current research fits into understanding these vulnerabilities. Yeah. So Puerto Rico is, right, it is and has been abundant. I think perhaps you get images in the media of of only victimization. Um, So I want to highlight that. And that abundance lies within our land and in our people. As recently as the 1950s, for example, the island had been growing the vast majority of its food. We had been rooted in agriculture, just as much in our economy as in our traditions, traditions of self-sufficiency, and at the exact same time, mutual aid. So even today, if you're in the countryside, your neighbor is going to have a finca of plantains, your second, second uncles are going to be the ones growing the root vegetables, your niece grows pumpkin, and the chickens roam kind of aimlessly in the streets. Um, But when you go with your machete to gather your lunch for that day, you're going to gather three times as much so you can bring some over to your friend too. So we like operate in this kin network of exchange. It's like an informal and circular economy that feeds not only our bodies, but our communities and our cultural values. But that dream, that anthem is dying. So that same federal tax incentive that when it was phased out, right, that had to kind of kick my mom out. It had also convinced this entire generation of Puerto Ricans that farming was a poor man's ambition, that the booming industries of oil, um, pharmaceuticals, that was prosperity. So farming disappeared and with it, our food sovereignty. So we now import almost all of the food we eat, um, although estimates are like difficult. You think, I think you tend to hear the 85%, but again, uh, a quarter of our economy is that informal underground. So we don't know. Um, But regardless, with that importation comes super energy dense, ultra processed foods, sugary beverages, canned meats. The island has the highest observed prevalence of type 2 diabetes found anywhere in the United States. Um, And with an aging population has a fractured health sector increasingly vulnerable to the burden of chronic disease. So this, that the 
political dynamic that is our relationship with the mainland. It has, at the very least, shaped our health and our well-being for the past century. It is a history that is embodied. And as we move into the future, we will be increasingly grappling with the environmental disasters in the Caribbean that will again not be our doing as the high-income, high-greenhouse-gas-emitting countries kind of pass on the burden of climate change and food insecurity to our shores. So that's the verbose version of, of that one little statement. And so for your your research is, of course, trying to, to zoom in on some of these problems and, and perhaps alleviate them or mitigate them. And before we get to that, I'm wondering if you can point to a defining moment that shaped your identity on your on your way up to your where you're at now. Yeah. Um, sitting at the dinner table with my grandma, um, she is exactly that emblem of, she is a rock um, of a family, of showing your love to your family through, through work and through food and through, you know, church. Um, I, I always have aspired to be like her and my mother um, to kind of allow your loved ones to rest quietly in your kind of embrace. Um, and, and the way I think about public health is always through the lens of what can we reclaim? Like what, not necessarily what are the exposures that make us sick, but what are those strengths, the same strengths that she embodies that we, that are our protective factors, right? Um, yeah. So now you're pursuing, a, a, your, your PhD is in population health sciences and nutritional epidemiology. And I wonder if you can just kind of walk us through what these, what these fields are, what they're all about and why this was the route you took. Yeah. So I kind of got into it a little bit, but food is definitely like, the centerpiece of my life, <laughs> at least. Um, it is like, it's incredible to think about, right? Like even from a biochemical perspective, like you can easily map on how so much of our like body's functions are serving that one task of eating our teeth to chew, our lungs to bring in oxygen for metabolism, our blood to carry nutrients to our muscles and then historically, food and agriculture is like the backbone of the Anthropocene. It's, it governs so much of our natural resource use and our planetary health impacts. And again, food is the center of my social and spiritual life. It is the plate full of rice and beans. That is the word love, right? That is never spoken out loud, but always said in that service. Um, unleavened bread is the culmination of mass on Sundays, right? So those are those perspectives. And then from an epidemiological perspective, food is an inescapable confounding problem. Why? Because foods are matrices. Nutrients and nutritional epidemiology are irretrievably embedded in a network of other nutrients in just one food item, let alone an entire meal, an entire day of meals, an entire lifetime. So 
And then, and then there's this other aspect that eating is not just survival, like for our body, right? It's, it's a source of human thriving. We catch up with friends over coffee. We celebrate our triumphs at restaurants. We shop at supermarkets or in food deserts. So the prospect of perfectly isolating that causal effect of nutrition is a behemoth task, if not utterly impossible. But that is what is so attractive about it as a training population health scientist. Learning about how to predict and advocate for health in this field kind of forces you from the very outset to be honest about all of the assumptions and limitations and potential pitfalls that truth-seeking entails. And it captures that patchwork of causality that is the entire human experience. And it reminds me, just like we must be grounded in real life and in real communities. It reminds me that the role of epidemiologists is just a little bit more complicated than any typical scientist. It's twofold, not onefold. Not only do we have to identify whether an exposure is in fact causal, but we also have to ask ourselves, should we do something about that exposure? And that all of a sudden brings you back to reality, right? Because that second question is an inherently ethical one and one that you have to ask with community and with considerations of autonomy, beneficence, and justice, um, kind of doing away with any supposed sterility of of science, right? So a lot of scientists, you know, when I think about an air pollution scientist, for example, they they study air pollution and maybe they're able to go back to their apartment and depending on where they live, maybe they don't think about it all night. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about you as somebody who seems like food touches your life in so many ways, uh, including your work. If you're able to disentangle some of the problems that you're looking at, whether it's who's creating the food, who's suffering so that food makes it to your table. Um, I mean, all the problems embedded in the system here and abroad. Um, if you're able to disentangle that kind of and enjoy uh, meals with friends and family. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, I definitely feel like I am myself first and foremost, and perhaps a scientist second. I think I always have this this worry, um, the self-doubt that I think is actually really important. And I've come to embrace that perhaps, you know, my lived experience, the, the fact that I'm, I feel like I am a data point in my work, um, makes me have a biased perspective to that work and keeps me um, from, you know, from potentially uncovering other perspectives um, that I'm not thinking about. Um, And I think every scientist has their, um, has their biases and kind of has their agendas And I embrace that I recognize mine. um, And I also um, internalize that that constant self-questioning in order to in order to make sure that I'm not taking it. um, I'm not taking it outside of kind of um, the rigor that that these communities and this science deserves. Right. Right. 
in the past, you've called it a dietary colonialism that's that's impacting Puerto Rico. And I, I think me, like most people, I've never been there, would love to go. But think of this this place of kind of maybe rolling countryside or something. I'm not thinking of Walmart and prepackaged food when I think of Puerto <laughs> Rico. I'm really not. So I'm wondering if you could talk about this dietary colonialism, how it manifests down there and why it's problematic from a public health perspective. Man, I'm going to, yeah, there's certainly Walmarts there. When I think of dietary colonialism, I'm going to zoom way back (laughs) into history, though. Um, As I've already mentioned, um, there is this overriding narrative, even in how I retold that story, that Puerto Rico has only just recently been exposed to, quote unquote, westernization and food import dependence. But the reality of colonialism on the island is much more far-reaching with roots in the 15th century. So my research has kind of like dug into that and mapped out how shifts in the agricultural priorities of the island um, really kind of has these impacts across political, cultural, and and ultimately nutritional um, kind of implications, right? So for example, we went from smallholder farmers growing, well, food, to colonizing nations being more interested in cash crops for export. Um, so that reconfigured the agricultural landscape towards non-nutritive tobacco, sugarcane, coffee. And then another fun fact, we had the introduction of resource-intensive livestock operations that could also be traced back to that period despite like we know that an island has limited land and pasture land, right? And now we know that, you know, highly processed meats could have negative health implications. And again, I want highlighting again how public health must be self-doubting and self-critical, right? This was actually bolstered during the 20th century by this public health assumption that there was protein malnourishment in the Caribbean. So now to overcome what was fertile agricultural landscape, actually like devoid of food, we had to start importing inexpensive rice, vegetable oils, animal fats. Those things come into play and are now the things that we consider as traditional staple foods. Um, Of course, they're they're being brought in, benefiting the economy of the exporting country. Um, and, And I cannot... This historical perspective, it can't, it can't be said it would be incomplete without acknowledging that slavery was fundamental to that story and is the ultimate injustice of that past. And you could continue to see the racism and colorism manifest discrimination and violence in Puerto Rico today. So I really want to highlight that. Um, and finally, just broadening out that this pattern of marginalizing local agricultural knowledge and food traditions in favor of colonizing nations has repeated itself in small island nations all over the world. And we could highlight the Pacific um, Islands as an example. And those things threaten local livelihoods, cultures, and health. So how about some of the positives? I, I What are what are you seeing in, in Puerto Rico or some of these other um, uh, island nations that that you can outline some of the efforts locally to push for nutrition and kind of a nod to the cultural heritage instead of um, a foot being put on it. Yeah, yeah. I'll definitely highlight agroecology. 
Um, it's a burgeoning effort in Puerto Rico, and it commits not only um, to sustainable and regenerative farming practices, right, to, to protect every single acre of mountain and shore, um, but it also emphasizes that social and political peace, right, where you want to alleviate poverty, we want to promote gender equality, protect land rights, preserve food cultures, support small-scale food producers, um, it has roots that are kind of that mirror la via campesina, but we've made it all our own. We have organizations like Organización Boricua developing processes for local organic certification. We have Campo Sofia bringing dinner tables right into the farm. We have Alianza por la Agricultura. They host these farmer to farmer conferences for peer learning and coalition. Women are finding their rightful place in the landscape. They have always been the heads of households, like my grandma. They're the food and health decision makers of their families, but they have seldom have held the same economic power as their male peers. And all of these efforts kind of have this overarching theme that food lies at the intersection of health, environmental sustainability, and self-determination. Um, I just want to highlight uh, some research my group has done. Um, thinking about climate resilience in Puerto Rico, um, we've we talked with smallholder farmers right after Hurricane Maria, and it really highlights that multidimensionality. Uh, through narrative storytelling, these participants kind of discuss their various efforts to ready their farms for another extreme weather event, whether it be diversifying their food crops digging wells or installing solar panels, um, preparing community road clearance uh, plans. Uh, the conversation reveals a lot of local and intergenerational expertise, but it also reveals a lot of pain, right? And we can't just massage that away. There is resilience, but there's also this, this grief highlighted that when food is your work, that when providing sustenance for your family is your livelihood, that when the land is your bounty, your identity, and that land gets decimated, that there is a part of you that gets decimated too. Um, but hopefully some participants, you know, some participants kind of have continued to struggle. We talked to them a year and a half after the hurricane. Others kind of saw this cycle of seed and harvest and death and nature's renewal that that they saw their identity in that too. And, and some of them found a way to plant again. So it's very clear that this research isn't just a, a paycheck for you or a, <laughs> a route, a route to a job. So I'm, I'm wondering how do you see your, your work, your research fitting into making things better when it comes to food accessibility, food justice and nutrition? Cause I don't, you don't seem like the kind of person that's going to publish and then, leave it, leave your publishing in some esoteric journal. It seems like you would, you would push a little more. So I'm wondering what that looks like. I think partnerships um, with um, communities and organizations that are on the ground, like all of those I've already mentioned is key, but also like uplifting this, these truths and these desires of food sovereignty to the scientific stage um, is crucial. I do, I am a scientist at heart, I think. Um, 
And I kind of hope to dig into this more in the written piece, which I guess is like an unsolicited commercial for <laughs> for EHN, right? But um, I, I hope that my colleagues in nutrition um, kind of understand, or in the theory at least, that that food systems can actually be self-determined. I keep using that, coming back to that word. That's what, that those objectives are achievable and it's what the communities we serve, that's what they desire. And I think it's very, it's actually very easy for public health professionals when we think of a system to imagine individuals at the very innermost of concentric circles that, and those circles represent their social and political and ecological environments. And with that image, it's actually very difficult to conceive of individuals really having any agency over their lives. They're instead kind of rendered helpless to the structural determinants around them and become sick. But I want to emphasize, and I want to emphasize, by the way, that a structural perspective is imperative and long-awaited, and it's a welcome respite from all of the biomedical theories that have long dominated the field, right? But it alone is not enough. We got to, instead of just imagining the arrows kind of cascading down from the systemic to the individual, we have to envision arrows that rebound back up from individuals to systems that communities have power and capacities to own their own health, their own farms, their own food systems. And it is exactly through those social and cultural and political and ecological spheres that they do so. And they coalesce this like shared and sustainable power to affect the change that they want to see. So full disclosure, I, uh, I actually run a, uh, I, my wife and I have a small farm down the road and I've worked in urban ag and this is all very close to me too. And I, I have to say, as someone who's written about the environment, worked in the space for a while, food is where I have the most optimism. I've mm-hmm. seen people from very different um, political persuasions that all understand that we all eat and kind of get the point that local is is better and, and less chemicals are better. I think these concepts are pretty self-apparent. I'm wondering if you share my optimism. Yeah, I just... You know, I have been looking at funding opportunities with the United States Department of Agriculture, which doesn't tend to show any political inclinations. But, but you know, you think about the farm bill in the United States, and it tends to be a bipartisan supported bill. And you think of rural development, right? There are so many lines that we have kind of gotten used to being drawn in the sand in the United States, the 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 political spectrums that kind of no longer talk to each other, but food and farming are, can I hope be one of those unifying things that I can go to, you know, rural Louisiana and I have and talk to farmers about their sugar cane. um, And, you know, they are probably voting for somebody very different than, you know, other members of my community. And at the same time, we could kind of agree together that we could use the residue that they were going to burn on their farms to instead make biochar and that that is going to be a source of income for them. And that's also going to reduce air pollution in the, in their area. Right. I think it's, very easy it is it is a platform that 
brings us joy as a human species. And so maybe I hope that it could be a common place to come together and to talk to each other about solutions. We'll see. So obviously you're here in the Agents of Change program because you have at least a passing interest in science communication and getting your work to a broader audience. And curious if you can talk to us about a, a bit about how you see science communication fitting into your work moving forward. I love this question. It's like science communication is so hard. Um, I see it. I see it in my conversations with my mom and my aunts about what to cook all the time. Now that I'm getting a PhD in nutrition, they think I'm some kind of expert. Um, so I previously mentioned how you have to like keep the complexities of systems in your mind and that that is essential to our work as scientists. But it actually, I think, is like the antithesis of effective health communication. Um, and I think I would say it again, I think translating our work to actualize change instead of thinking about those complexities, it's just, I think it's overwhelmingly apparent but almost virtually absent um, that we have to consider agency centeredness in our conversations with folks that I can be as excited as I want about colonial histories or that new recipe of baked plantains. I just tried out. Um, or I can also come in with the assumption that they want to reduce their chronic disease risk, or they want to control their blood glucose levels, or they want to go on a diet, but none of those things may be true. And I think it is imperative as a communicator not to impose, but to listen. It's like almost like an irony. So what are her goals? What choices does she want to make? What strengths and knowledge and resources do they already have? What resources do they want to reclaim? What problem does he want to overcome? And with who or for whom does he want to work? It is only by honoring the power that individuals have over their own health that we will push any kind of needle forward. And and I think obviously like this unwavering faith almost that that one conversation, that one decision or that one movement has enough power to act on the whole system. Yeah. And in, in your communication experience up to this point, have you used um, social media platforms at all to, to translate your work or just maybe connect with other folks who are interested in it? I got on Twitter in March of last year, <laughs> um, perhaps as a distraction in the pandemic, perhaps. Um, yeah, more so knowing other scientists in my field, using it as a way to communicate their, um, their work. I actually think we're battling in the new world of tech, this algorithmic type of landscape in which I will go on Twitter and I will only see other public health scientists speak my speak, you know, be talking about causal inference or, um, but, and I just recently, like yesterday, like uncovered the world that is like uh fiction Twitter and like just, you know, and I think TikTok is another example of that. So it's, it's very, it, it'll be really important to understand how we can actually reach 
the audiences that we want to reach when we're communicating and not just preach to the choir um, in those kind of black holes that that these platforms are becoming. Well, Brania, this has been a really awesome conversation. I have one last question for you, and that is, what is the last book you read for fun? <laughs> I am uh, I'm currently reading the Dostoevsky, believe it or not, Brothers, the Brothers K. Um, yeah, and it's super dense. I maybe a more approachable one right before was the the Lord of the Flies. I had somehow missed it during high school. Um, it was great. That's awesome. I'm actually reading Dostoevsky's, what is it? A Disgraceful Affair right now, which is uh, a little bunch of short stories. And it is amazing to read those authors and they still have, it's still, it's still relevant. It still works today. It's beautiful. Well, Brania, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. Thank you. That's all for this week, folks. I hope you enjoyed that conversation. If you'd like to support this podcast, please visit ehn.org and click the big orange donate button. You can also find Agents of Change on Twitter and Instagram or at ehn.org under our special projects tab. Please follow us on Spotify, iTunes, or Stitcher where you can listen to this and all past episodes. The Agents of Change podcast is written, recorded, and edited by me with outreach and scheduling and support from the rest of the team, Ami Zoda, Samar Ahmad, Gwen Raniger, and Raya Haddad. We'd like to hear from you. Email us at agentsofchangeneh at gmail.com with suggestions for the show, questions for the fellows, reviews, or just a chat. And sign up for our monthly Agents of Change newsletter at the program homepage, agentsofchangeneh.com. Thanks for joining us. We hope to keep these important conversations on diversity in science and health going. Join us next time when we have a special episode. Dr. Ami Zoda, founder and director of Agents of Change, hosts a conversation with Dr. Shauna Swan from Mount Sinai and Annie Huang, a medical student at the University of California in San Francisco and a master's of public health student at Harvard. They talk about the intersection of environmental chemicals, fertility, and health equity and justice. This is a can't-miss episode, plus you get a week off from me. I hope you all have a great week. Till next time.